You're listening to Family Feud, part of the Paris Style Podcast family. They might not be brother and sister, but they sure do fight like they are. Here's your hosts, Keely Yor and Shotgun Spratling. Welcome to another episode of the Family Feud Podcast. I'm your host, Keely Yor, joined by Shotgun Spratling and the return of the cousin of the pod, Chris Trevino. We're glad to have you back. Don't listen to whatever Shotgun's going to say next. We're glad whoa, to have you back. Whoa. It's fine that he's back. Sometimes okay. you just need a little space. And you're like, okay, we can bring the family back together. That's okay. a really nice backpedal. You should work out with Dante. You probably <laughs> wouldn't have much notes on that. I heard what you said. I even heard that you specifically said I wouldn't hear what you said because I don't listen to it. But I was on the road for 12 hours. You think I wouldn't throw on a podcast? You I didn't just, think I would throw on 20 seconds of podcasts <laughs> just to hear? I'm surprised you made it through 20 seconds. That's all I need to know. After I that, my you, name was not mentioned anymore, so I can I can move on. You got notes from someone <laughs> to tell you that, that you weren't mentioned again? No. I. Oh, so you oh. listened to the whole thing. Ooh. No, I didn't listen at all. I was trying to figure <laughs> out what you just said. I didn't listen to it at all. Got him. Got him. <laughs> Killed him. We have a fun show for you guys today. Last week, we previewed USC's 2021 offensive roster. We're going to be looking at the defense this episode and the storylines we're looking for when we're looking at USC's defense in fall camp. And we'll have Chris help us out. I, I For some reason, Chris, I really value your defensive observations. I don't know why. I feel like it's a specialty of yours. Defensive? Yeah. Because he's always on the defensive. Oh. It's like the first funny thing you've said <laughs> in like three podcasts. <laughs> That was good. That was good. And before we get into our defensive preview, we got to talk about our player-run practice observations. USC had another one this week. We're actually we're actually fresh off of it, coming straight from USC to the podcasting studio. So you're getting our instant analysis. And Chris, I believe this is your first time seeing one, seeing the players up close. I'm curious what you have to say about that. And then we'll finish the episode with some questions. Chris, you were off. You are a marketing manager, so we got to wait till the sponsors roll in again for some more take it or leave it. So we'll get back to that next week. Thank you to the people who sent us emails this week. Also, look out for a tweet from Shotgun Spratling. I usually say Thursdays, we're recording on a Tuesday because of Shotgun, so it's all Shotgun's fault, is what I'm saying. Whoa. But uh, he usually puts out a tweet, and you can put your questions there. So thank you to everyone who did that. We'll get to those questions toward the end of the pod. But like I said, guys, we are fresh off the player-run practice. Chris, I know you love it when I put you on the spot, but I'm tossing it to you first. I'm curious about what your initial takeaways were because we talked about ours last week. Yeah, it was very cool. Just I got there early as usual, and I just kind of took a moment to sit there by the tunnel because we hadn't been there since, what, over a year, since like spring uh, of last of last last year, not not this past spring, and when we did watch camp, we had to watch from afar. We couldn't go near the tunnel, which has like always been like our home base during the camp opening. So it was very cool to go back, and it was cool to watch all these players roll in and just see them up close because we haven't seen them up close in a long time. So I got to see different things that you know you couldn't really observe in the springtime. We were watching on top of. Uh, the pool deck or whatever from far away through binoculars or whatever you you can't really pick up stuff so it was nice again to see you know little details of like how people's bodies have changed and seeing new guys up close seeing freshmen see maybe how they've adapted or put on weight during this these last couple of months and yeah there were some things that stood out to me I mean I think one was 
Cortland Ford for me. I did not absolutely recognize him when he rolled up on a scooter. I was like, whoa, who is this? He looks like a giant uh, tight end, like a uh, hella athletic tight end that could go out and run. So a tight end from the Bay. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I guess a tight end from the Bay. Uh, Oakland born and bred. I don't know. Just a guy who could, you know, flank out wide at any moment and just run down the field and catch a, a seam route or something. That's how athletic he looks. Um, looks like he's lost some of that weight across the the belly when he first got here. It's all up in his chest. But yeah, he he impressed me just the way he looked. Another guy was Ty Buchanan, the freshman three star offensive lineman from uh, out there in Texas. He caught my eye immediately. I I didn't recognize him obviously initially just because I hadn't seen him before in person. Him being from Texas, but I saw him and I was like, oh, this guy looks interesting, and I realized that he was an offensive tackle looks more like a kind of look more like a defensive lineman to me, like a really fit defensive end. I really liked what his frame looked like big chest up top, broad chest. Uh, like I said, great frame, just get a little more weight on him. And I think he's going to be a really nice offensive lineman, assuming that he develops um, other guys. I think I was looking at the O line Andres, Andres de work. I saw him in high school. Keely, you and me actually saw him in high school. It looks yeah. like he's trimmed off some of that baby fat, that bad weight. That kind of was like in the middle. Looks like he's bulked up a little bit. Still probably a project for 2021, but I like what he's doing in the weight room. Looks like he's, you know, changed his body a little bit. Thought that was nice. Shotgun mentioned it last week when I read your guys' notes about how Malcolm Epps looks super, super tall, and I would absolutely agree with that assessment. I actually thought he was like a beefy basketball player walking by. I was like... <laughs> Oh, this must be a basketball player. And I was like, oh, wait, no, I recognize him from your photos. Great beard. That's Malcolm Epps. Like, oh, my goodness. That guy could be a weapon. I don't know if he can play. We're going to see if he can play. But he looks like he could be a, a dude, you know, if he, if he clicks in this offense. Um, tell me when you want me to stop. I'm just railing off stuff it's off the great. top of my head. I put up a bunch of ghost notes. Um, so you can go see those. Those will have a lot more of my unfiltered thoughts. Tuli Tui Pelotu, super, super high on him. He looks like a grown man. He looked like a grown man out of high school, but now I feel like he's like a, a layer, like an onion. He just added another layer to his body. <laughs> he looks the same, just a little bit bigger. It's like he's bulking, but it's all proportionate, just like another layer of muscle all over his body. Like he got an extra layer of uh, armor. Yeah, like he upgraded. And I feel like he's lost some of the baby fat he had from, mm-hmm. from high school as well. Because I feel like he had some of that coming out of high school, but it seems like he's trimmed down a little bit at, at the same time while I'm bulking up. Um, Casey Collier's a guy we didn't see last week, and he continues to just – he looks like a dude. Now, we've talked about in the past, and we talked about last week, how he's going to have to do better with his bend and you know being able to get down in his squat and block from his squat. But – you know, he, he looks like a guy that has NFL potential. Now, can he live up to that potential? That's going to be up to the, the offensive staff, the offensive line coaches. But it was the first time we saw him. Uh, some other guys that weren't there last week, Mavai Malapai, uh, Jordan Iasefa. Um, we did see Solomon Tule Alapupu last week, but we saw him back again this week. That's a positive sign. You know, we're not going to we're not yet into territory of him practicing for a full week, so we're not going to get fully into him. We'll talk about him a little bit in in the uh, defensive. We saw Ishmael Shopshire, and it looked like he actually did some work today. So that's another positive sign there as well from some of the injured players uh, going forward. So, Chris, I'm going to bring this up just because we 
kind of debated it a little extensively last week just on the fact that we saw Malcolm Epps and we were like, huh, okay, we saw Michael Trigg. Just the sight of them made us wonder if USC will be able to use their tight ends differently just because they look like possible weapons. And also, where will they line up because of their weapon status? I will never assume USC will be able to figure out how to use a tight end. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and not even touch that. Says the man who's sitting on so much tight end stock right look, now. Look, I can't offload it without <laughs> taking a loss on it. So I just have to hold it. But I'm just like accepting the fact that maybe I'm just going to take a big old loss on that. But that being said, give me more Malcolm X, Epps stock i keep saying malcolm x it's malcolm Epps. <laughs> very similar i can see why did see some more players out there today including some of the veterans vi malapai joining sf are returning after they weren't there last week so you know getting almost to full strength at least uh, of players out there at the prp still a couple players not there drake jackson's here right um so we're gonna see next week after media day. There's gonna be one more PRP for us to watch before camp starts, and we'll see if they have a full collection then. Um, and so far, it doesn't look like there's any serious injuries right now, other than the ones we already know about. Doesn't feel like there's been any you know big accidents or you know injuries happening during the training or anything, which can sometimes happen. Thinking back, thinking back to Stephen Mitchell tearing his ACL in, in spring camp or in uh, summer workouts and stuff. So. So far, it looks like USC's healthy, and it seems like everyone's working their way to being 100% going into fall camp. Talked to Kyle Ford last week, says he's you know good to go, ready to go. Solomon Tuliala-Pupu has you know, back-to-back weeks that he's been in cleats and been out there, so that's a positive sign. So I think that USC is trying to get be 100% and knock on wood for the first time in a long time. It looks like they're you know trending in the right direction that way going into fall camp. Chris, you noted in your ghost notes that Chris Steele did not look 100%. Not that he didn't look 100%. I just noticed he was in flats. And we didn't see Chris Steele last week, so maybe he's working his way back from something as well. You mentioned Jordan ISF, and we actually got a question about him, so I'm just going to bump that up since it is relevant. It's from Chris, who says, uh, What's the latest with Jordan ISF? He continues to fly under the radar, albeit he hasn't played in two years. I'm still excited to see him play, if healthy. So I actually put this update in the war room last week, but uh, he's still waiting to get medically cleared. Originally, it sounded like the decision was going to be made in July, but then it was pushed uh, to seems like August at this point. So we'll see. But I heard that he is making progress, but still has a ways to go. So we'll see about that. So just an update there. Unfortunately, I'm putting him in the same category as Salman Tuliala-Pupu. You know, when it's been multiple injuries and just not being able to get back until we see him out there for a week, you guys got to consider that they're not going to be a part of the rotation. If he comes back, if Tulia Pupu comes back and they're fully healthy, I think both of those guys have the ability and capability to jump in and be a part of at least the linebacker rotation, if not taking over a starting role. But until we see them out there practicing, I think you got to look at Kanai Mauga and Raylan Goforth as the leaders in that group. Yeah, and start pushing along, you know, Julian Simon, hoping he Mm -hmm. takes a step. Taylor Katoa, he looks like he's fully back to being from from that hamstring that kind of hindered him in 2020. You hope he's ready to contribute. Rajon Davis, get him up to speed. It looks like you're bringing in these, this new guard, um, and it's and that sucks, you know, because Jordan SF, a great guy, was a team captain two years ago, um, brings a lot of leadership. You just hope, you know, I'm not holding out that maybe he can complete for compete for a starting job. You know, you're just hoping that he's able to play some football in his final year get on the field, whatever that may be. Maybe it's, you know, later in the season when he's fully go, help out, whatever it may be. 
knee injuries always tough, especially when you keep having them in the same in the same manner. So right now you're just kind of just waiting, seeing what's going to go on with him. With the injury issues that they've had at, at linebacker, you're thinking about Juliana Falanico, who finished last year on you know basically the IR. Elijah Winston, same thing, did not play. That's why you move a guy like Kalana McCalla because you've been building up all this depth at the safety position, recruiting so well with Dante Williams and Craig Nivar that you're able to move some guys down into the box. So I think that tells you a lot, though, about the potential of ESF Atuliapupu that we're not certain about it as a coaching staff. USC's coaches are saying, let's make sure we have some extra depth. Let's move someone else down uh, in case those guys aren't ready you know, from the start. And we don't know if they'll be there throughout the season either. So that's why you move some extra bodies in there. Micah Crooms, another guy that was a safety originally um, at Dartmouth and moved down to the linebacker position. So I think that's why the linebackers, you've seen a couple guys move into the box. Sounds like you're dipping into the preview there. Both of you were. I was about to say, sorry, did I just fast forward to the linebacker section of this defensive preview? We might have. A little bit. Well, hold your horses, There's gentlemen. more than just the preview inside linebackers. of the preview. Well <laughs> done. Well, okay. Any other final PRP thoughts? Uh, we have one more to quote-unquote see. It'll be next week after uh, the day after Pac-12 Media Day, which I believe we can still attend in person, so stay tuned for that. We'll give you our take As of there. now. As of now. Well, I'm just going to go on to the next segment because I don't trust you two to just say just single PRP thoughts. So let's go into the 20. I mean, I can do the whole defensive preview off of one yeah, PRP thought. Just, hey, Shotgun, <laughs> what did you think about the ankle wrap on? Can I go, well, let me break it down in terms of the 4-3 defense and the history of it in this USC. Okay, shut up. I just want to know what you thought about the ankle wrap. I just want to give you the full context, Chris. All right, fair enough. I forgot how much of a handful you two are. It's very hard to keep this show on the road. Uh, like I was saying, the fall 2021 defensive preview. Storylines for the defense. First off, obviously, replacing Marlon Tupelo, too. And I think 1B to that will be replacing Jay Toya, because I think that was our answer in spring camp. But obviously, he transferred to UCLA, so that is no longer a viable option. So when looking at the defensive line, uh, like I just said, departures, Marlon Tupelo. Tui Pelotu left for the NFL draft. Jay Toya transferred. Caleb Trimblay transferred. Connor Murphy transferred. And Trevor Trout medically retired. If you're looking at additions, there's this guy named Corey Foreman. I think USC fans have heard of him. He's a five-star composite number one overall player in the 2021 class. USC also added Ishmael Sobscher. He's a redshirt sophomore who transferred from Alabama, but he did have compartment syndrome in both of his legs, so he has been limited during his time as a Trojan. And they also added Colin Mobley, a three-star defensive lineman from DeMatha. Chris. Oh, he's flying out right now. Let's go. Chris, why is that important to you? PG County Beach Boy. Is he one? I was wondering. He is a PG County Beach Boy. Or, sorry. he is. No, he is a PG County Beach Boy because he lives in SoCal now. And he's from PG. <laughs> That's the definition of a PG County Beach Boy. Good to know. Maybe there should be a PG County Bo- Beach Boy pot. You and, and Colin Mobley. Me and Colin? Yeah. Colin's a little shy, so I don't know how that would go. <laughs> you both, it would just be 30, 30 minutes of silence in that right. podcast. Is that a you know requisite of PG County Beach Boys? No. Sounds like it. Being shy? Yeah. No. All the PG County Beach Boys I know. <laughs> you know two. <laughs> two for two. 100%. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> So looking at the rest of the defensive line depth chart outside of the additions, you have Nick Figueroa and then Jacob Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein opted out of the 2020 season and then came back, but wasn't 
super affected because he did have to go through quarantine protocols and whatnot. So I don't think USC got as much out of Liechtenstein as they wanted to in 2020. And looking at the defensive tackles, you have Tuli Tui Pelotu, Kobe Pepe, Dejan Benton, Stanley Talafu, Jamar Sakona, Mananoa Tifono. And I put Brandon Peely, but there's an asterisk because he tore his Achilles, unfortunately, in spring camp. So he's out for the 2021 season. Yeah, and you look at those defensive ends, you go, wow, there's only two guys on there right now. Corey Foreman obviously can play that spot. He's going to be at the outside linebacker spot, the, that edge spot, along with Drake Jackson. It's going to be kind of a hybrid spot right there. Also, Colin Mobley can play that. But then you look at the defensive tackles. Tuli Tui Pelotu can play end as well. There's a little bit of, of versatility with a lot of these guys. So I think that they kind of flow in between the different positions. So don't freak out the fact that there's only two returning defensive ends, I don't think. The big question mark, though, is the nose tackle position. Not just defense tackle, but the nose tackle position in particular. Not only is it Marlon Tui Pelotu going to the NFL draft, Jay Tefele. Obviously, he could have been back on the on this roster as well. He is in the NFL as well. And then Jay Toya comes in and has a really impressive spring. We think maybe he's a front runner going into the fall. And instead, he decides to transfer, leaves to go to UCLA. And Trevor Trout is a guy that never made his way up there, You know, had to medically retire because of some injuries. A guy that you would think would be in the mix by this point in his career, but unfortunately injuries stopped that. So you're looking at it and going, there is no one with any experience at the nose tackle position right now that has any USC experience at least. Ishmael Sofshire played a little bit at Alabama. How much can he come in? That's going to be a big question mark. So I think that's probably the biggest question mark of the defense right now for me is what are you going to do at nose tackle? Who do you think can fill in there? Is Ishmael Sofshire the guy? Can he come in and say, okay, he's recovered from the injury, the double leg surgery, get back in shape a little bit as this last couple weeks going into fall camp, and then in the first few weeks of fall camp, do we look at him and go, oh, that's the guy? That's the guy right there, or is it, hmm, I wonder who they're going to start there. I mean, he's he's the more experienced guy and the higher-rated guy coming in from Alabama, but, you know, Kobe Pepe, Dejan Benton, Jamar Sakona, all those guys had some good flashes in the spring, so we'll see if they take that next step forward as well. Coming into spring camp, I don't know how you guys felt, but I felt like replacing Talanoa was sort of the most important battle or question mark that was on this defense just because Talano was you know an all-american he was arguably the best defender on the defense when he was healthy but now it is slowly sort of I think they're going to be all right in the secondary kind of you can't replace Talano but I think they have the bodies and the experience to do that and hold it up there but now it's replacing Marlin is obviously for me now the biggest storyline on this defense just because They've been gutted so much. You know, you lost Brandon Peely, like you said. You lost Jay Toya. Because middle of spring, you thought, we're sitting pretty. We're going to get Ishmael back in the fall. He'll be good to go. You got Jay Toya. He can start while Ishmael builds up. Now you don't have that. Now you're relying on some unproven guys. You're relying on, you know, a couple of redshirt freshmen and, you know, Jamar Sakona, Kobe Pepe, a redshirt sophomore possibly to step up, and Dijon Benton. Maybe you have to go even deeper than that. I think from the coach's point of view, they were tracking because safety was a known unknown. And I think the transfer portal pickups reflect that. Whereas, like Chris just described, you came into spring thinking, okay, you have a Brandon Peely who should be ready at this point. And you picked up Ishmael Sopcher from the transfer portal. You should, quote unquote, be good. But then unknown things happen and suddenly you're good. You're 
okay, you're all right at safety. You're not at nose tackle. I think that you, you look at that and it definitely has flipped. I think you're absolutely correct, Chris. I think that you look at it and you go, okay, we got some more experience and you're adding Chris Thompson Jr. in there, another guy who played in the SEC and had you know a significant amount of playing time as a true freshman this past year. Xavier Alford, he's got in and got his feet wet. Now I think you, you feel confident that he can come in and compete for one of those spots. You can Greg Johnson back at a safety spot as well, coming back and being healthy. So I think that you feel okay with the safeties. There's a lot of bodies, a lot of talented bodies, whereas the defensive tackles, your highest-rated guys, your most veteran guys, those are the guys that disappeared. Brandon Peely, you know, you expected him, okay, this is the year he's going to step up and take over that role. And you felt even with the way that Jay Toya was pushing him early in camp and that some of the other guys were pushing him, like, okay, he's, now he's going to step up and he's going to push forward, and instead he, he has the unfortunate injury he's going to be out for the entire season. Then you feel like Jay Toya is a four-star guy, came in and made some really big jumps, really big strides as a freshman in his first spring camp. And you go, okay, this guy looks like he can play right away. Whereas the other guys, you're saying, okay, they're making some strides, but you don't feel confident, oh, that's an immediate impact type of guy. These are three- and four-star guys, low four-star guys that, that you're now relying on rather than having you know, a top 150, a top 100 type of player that you can plug and play. Which is, you know, if Corey Foreman played that position, you'd still feel confident with that position. Okay, you, you have a five-star guy. He's going to come in. Maybe he'll be able to play right away. Instead, you're, you're worried and wondering because the two guys that you thought were at the front have now, you know, now no longer viable options. But that being said, me personally, I really liked what I saw from Dijon Benton and Jamar Sakona. Unfortunately, we did not get to see more of Kobe Pepe, he had the arm injury, uh, that Coliseum practice that kind of knocked him out for the final stretch there. But I'm still really high on Kobe Pepe. I was high on him coming out of St. John Bosco. You know, he was a dude at St. John Bosco. A little bit, I thought, maybe a little bit under underrated. Mm-hmm. Only a three-star prospect, but he was very productive in the Trinity League. So I still have high hopes for him. But Jamar Sakona is a guy I'm pegging to sort of be the one to kind of step up. I went so far as to I'm doing currently the top 25 most important Trojans, a countdown for the season, just a small little plug. Um, I actually have him as number 22. I just dropped it today. I have him as number 22, and that's purely sort of like a prediction play where I think it very easily, you know, it could be Kobe Pepe. Kobe Pepe could be the one who who emerges, or maybe it's Dijon Benton. But I'm I'm tying my horses to Jamar Sakona right now. I mean, if you think back to those first couple weeks of spring ball, who was it that was out there really early with the defense in the first team and the second team? To my surprise, it was Jamar Sakona. And, and kind of Vic Soto kind of said, Jamar was doing all the right things in the offseason. He came into shape, and that's why he's being rewarded for that. He's getting the opportunity to kind of run with those first and second team. That kind of really opened my eyes to kind of the work that Jamar was coming in or putting in going to the spring camp. And I think he was a little bit, I don't want to say forgotten in the class, but I know there was like, maybe there was talk of him moving to offensive line, which is, you know, never a great sign when you, when you bring them on as a defensive lineman. No, no disrespect to Liam Jimmons, no disrespect, (laughs) but you and I saw him. I I liked uh, you and I, I pointed at shotgun visual bit, visual bit, unintentional visual bit, but we, we went up, at, when we were up there in NorCal, mm-hmm. we got a chance to see him, and he he was he was physical. He was all over the place. I really liked his game. He looks like a different player. You know, he's lost some of that that belly weight in the middle. He's kind of barrel chested up top. 
He's got the braids going. He looks like a different person. So I'm really high on Jamar Sakona. You can come back here if it comes back to bite me, but you better give me props too if he ends up being the guy. <laughs> I think, you know, what we saw, Sopcher doesn't look like he's ready to be, you know, full pads, full go. They're probably bringing him on slowly. And that, and that makes sense. The guy hasn't played in a long time and he's coming off surgery off his legs. Probably needs to get in condition fast, but they're probably going to work him in slowly. But I think Jamar is the guy right now. I think that he could be the guy to step up at least early in camp, and then we'll see how it plays out now that Kobe's happy, now that Kobe Pepe is healthy. And then you also have Dijon pushing as well. I think you're onto something with Jamar, Chris, because that was a guy whose name kept kind of popping up throughout interviews that we had in spring camp, and that's kind of a, a sign. But I also asked Brett Nealon last week about, hey, who impressed you the most in spring camp? And he mentioned Jamar. That was the first name that came up. So I think there's something there. I'm just giving you some extra extra props. And we have been very high on the production of that defensive line as a whole unit and what Vic Soto has been able to do with those players. So I think that there's there's some talented guys there, and I think they can work their way up. And But one concern I have with both of those guys, and maybe even Dijon Benton as well, Jamar Sacona listed at 6'2". Kobe Pepe listed at 6'1". You would like to have a tank in the middle of your defensive line, you know, that can take up two blockers, you know, that forces the offensive line to do some different things so that they can run the ball. Now, I think both of those guys, Jamar Sacona and Pepe, have good quickness. They can get in the backfield and cause some havoc on pass rush. But I'm a little worried about the the run uh, defense that USC will they have to change some things up, blitz some more in those gap, those middle gaps and stuff to help protect those young defensive tackles. So you may see the way that they end up uh, calling plays early in the season may change a little bit as the season progresses, as those guys progress, if they feel like they don't have to protect them as much. And that's something I think you'll see early in the season, especially if Sopshire isn't 100% or isn't, you know, doesn't take over and command you know, a starting spot is that you may protect those those young defensive tackles a little bit more with some of the pressures and stuff that they do. I agree 100%. They're not they're not built like Marlon Tuipolotu. And but he was only 6 foot 2 as well. So you don't have to be a, you know, the 6 foot 4 guy. You would ideally want someone like Brandon Peely, 6 foot 4, 325 pounds. You're you're looking at Sopcher, 6 foot 4, 330 pounds what they're listed at. You want to have that height as well because it just it's another thing that makes it more difficult for you to block if you have the weight, the height, so that you're uh, more difficult to throw over the middle against. So that's a little bit of concern with those guys, and I think that's one of the reasons why Pepe was, despite the ridiculous amount of production he had at St. John Bosco, that he was only a three-star coming out is because he didn't have the prototypical height and weight that you're looking for for a nose tackle. Now, I think they can overcome that, but I think it's going to take a little bit of work from Todd Orlando and the defensive coaching staff as well to protect them a little bit. Yeah, and I wouldn't even be surprised if Todd Orlando was like, okay, screw it. I don't have the traditional nose tackle that I like, this 320-pounder. At least Sopcher is not ready yet early in the season. Maybe he says, F it. Let's go with where our strength is, and that's with these versatile defensive ends. Maybe it's like, okay... Let's just throw four down. Let's throw uh, Thule, who can play inside. Let's throw Jacob Lichtenstein down in the middle. Make it kind of like a two-man. Throw Nick Figueroa on the outside. Maybe throw Corey on the other side. I don't know. Maybe they go more defensive end heavy to try to to combat the lack. Because that's where their strength is. It's these really talented, a uh, little twitchy, a little versatile guys. Uh, I think a lot of that depends on 
Jacob Linskenstein being ready to handle that. He's played inside. We've seen him do that. But will the health, uh, will the health stand up? Because obviously I really like what he was doing early in spring, but they got a little banged up. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of went through their defensive ends at the problem. Yeah, I, I think that that's part of the solution. I think that w- that's one of the ways to protect them is to not have a true three-down lineman look a lot of times where you're putting that nose tackle on an island and asking him to either beat the center or beat the center and a guard. So I think that part of the protection is potentially playing two defensive tackles at a time or even three defensive tackles depending on what team you're playing and you know possibly loading up and using one of those ends inside you know, at one of the defense tackle spots, you know, in a, in a kind of a 5-2 look there. So there's some different things they can do, but that's part of the, I think that they're going to scheme a little bit differently to to protect those defense tackles. Their strength isn't space eating right now. It's, it's quickness and athleticism. Yep. And as far as weaknesses to exploit, how concerned should USC fans be when it comes to the defensive line? I mean, it's it's a concern when you get against a team like Utah or against a team like Notre Dame who wants to run downhill, wants to attack the middle of the line, and wants to really push you backwards. And that's that was going to be a concern regardless. You know, if Brandon Peeler was in there, I think that was still going to be a concern because that's just the strength of this defensive line is exactly what Chris said, is the, the quickness more than just the, you know, eating up space. So I think that's going to be on Todd Orlando. And this is what something that we really thought he did well last year with Talano Hufunga, moving him around in so many different spots, is don't be like, oh, i got to have this player here, and we're going to run our defense the way we run our defense. Yep, that's a great point. No, we're going to adapt our defense based on the talent that we have. And they did it really well with Talano in different, you know, different packages and stuff last year. Can they then do that this year with that defense tackle spot? And the fact that you have elite pass rushers potentially, potentially, on the outsides, Drake Jackson, Nick Figueroa, and Corey Foreman. It's a great point. Because I feel like that's something that Clancy Pendergast would just get stuck in. It would just be, this is the way we're doing this. But we did see variation from Todd Orlando and working with what he ha- what he has to then make up for certain deficiencies. That's what the best coordinators do. They work with what they have and adapt their scheme. They don't try to smash a square peg into a circle. They try to, all right, let's carve this out a little bit more. Let's let's work with what I got. Let's work with what I, what I do have and not what I don't have. And... Slight risk taking and trusting your players in order to put Talano Hufunga as a inside linebacker. Yeah, and I think part of it is some coaches will try to address the situation by changing personnel rather than saying these are my best guys. How can I adapt to them? They say what personnel can I adapt to my system? Um, so I, I think that's one of the things that we thought Orlando did really well last year, and he's got a different challenge this year. You know, maybe he's really good when he has a versatile safety. You know, a, a player like Talano Hufunga is much easier to say, hey, I want to keep this guy on the field and move him all over the place and have him make plays than saying, I've got a weakness at nose tackle. How do I fix it? It's much, that's a much different type of problem to have or type of issue to, to try to address. So we'll see how that, that works, and we'll see if we get an idea of it in fall camp. That's going to be something. Do we see some different looks from the defensive line? Um, you know, that's something we'll be keeping an eye on with that. But obviously, we've talked a long time right now about this defensive <laughs> tackle and nose tackle position. But that's why why we've talked so much about it because I think it's the number one concern about this defense going forward. Yeah, and I just want to shift gears. Me myself, being a former defensive end, give a little more props because we've been talking about defensive Short tackles. Not not uh, more like handsome and twitchy gang. <laughs> 
<laughs> if I do San Francisco myself. But I, obviously, you have the number one player in the 24-7 composite coming in, Corey Foreman. Guys that do. Looks the part. Saw him out there in PRPs. Looks the part. Colin Mobley from DeMatha Catholic. Little powerhouse out in PG County. Nick Figueroa, who, coming off the labrum surgery, got to talk with him after today's PRP. I get mad captain vibes from Nick Figueroa. He Interesting. Know, look, I just get, you know, obviously USC has two returning captains, Keenan Slovis, Isaiah Pullamount. That's not guaranteed that they're going to be captains. USF? 2020 Consecutive captain. captains. Consecutive <laughs> captains. So assuming those are two those are two guys that retain their captainship, you know, you got two holes to fill with Amon Ross St. Brown and someone help me out. Elijah Vera, Elijah Vera Tucker. Oh. I think Nick is one of those guys who can fill that role. He, you know, spoke he sounded Nick has always been a really mature guy just because you know he's gone through the JUCO ranks. He he took the harder route to get to USC. He had to grind a little bit more. You know, he always is very he's very self-reflective and he's very gives very poignant quotes when you can talk about him. I always remember when I covered his signing at Riverside College. He was like, when I asked him about like what this moment feels like, he's like, yeah, I don't. Right now, I'm just really excited, but. Tonight, when I go home and it all, let it all sink in, I'll probably I'll probably cry, and things like that. He says really really introspective stuff like that, and he kind of talked about how he had some family stuff going on. He's gained a new perspective on his life, um, having gone through the quarantine. That really set things in in perspective for him. So he sounds like even more mature than he is, and he 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 recognizes that he is now the old man in the room, and he and he kind of had a laugh about that, especially with a guy like Ben Griffiths. They joke about that being the old guys in the room. Um, but he said he's trying to be more of a leader. You know, he's telling the young guys they can come to him and talk about talk to him about anything, whether it's like relationships, like off the field or football stuff. So he's trying to take on that role. So I think I think he has a shot to be a captain. To your point, Chris, apparently my interviewees just got the memo to back you up with whatever you say on this podcast. <laughs> but I talked to Kobe. Pepe. I know Kobe, so I'll Venmo him. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, he actually mentioned Nick Figueroa and said that he's been a leader not only of the defensive line room, but the defense as a whole, especially during PRPs. So we'll see how that shakes out in fall camp. And just note, he is healthy. Shoulder is healed. He said he actually came to USC with this injury. It's kind of a fairly common injury for anyone that... Swim moves. Yeah. So... It didn't really bother him. Like he said, he could feel it. Like if he went over a bump too hard in a car, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> but he said he he's played through it for the last like two years or however however long he's been here. But he said in week two, the Arizona game is really when it started to like started giving him trouble. But he just like gutted out and played through it. So wow, interesting to see what his game looks like now. Yeah. Now that he's you know fully healed up, does his game take another step forward? You know, with the fact that he has two shoulders to actually swim move his stuff because he's got a shoulder. He was he was in the backfield a ton last year. He's the unheralded guy amongst that defensive line group. You know, this just was constantly providing pressure. And talked about this before, but you need multiple guys that can get a pass rush. And I think that USC has that this year. If they can get force teams into passing situations, now that is again, that's my concern is, you know, can they stop the run early downs to force teams? Because if you're in third and long situation, you don't want to see when USC says, hey, 
bring in the pass rush unit with Hunter Eccles, bring in Corey Foreman, and bring in Drake Jackson. We'll have at least those three guys along the line. And then you add Nick Figueroa potentially. So that's your four pass rushers. That's an elite group right there of pass rushers. You don't want that group to come in uh, you know, off the sideline to, to come in when it's third and 14 or something. The quarterback's looking like, let's, let's run that screen pass real quick. You two are dangerous together because one of you mentioned we talked way too long about the defensive line and then suddenly went in 10 more minutes about the defensive Look, line. Look, I just so. wanted to give... We talked about the nose tackle for a long time. Yeah, we, yeah, we want to give a move full... move to the end. Encompassing. This is a preview. This isn't a half view. <laughs> this is a preview. Okay, well, let's move on to linebackers. First up with departures. Palie Naote Ote transferred. Last we saw him was at the Arizona game. He came out with a concussion, and then we never saw him return as a Trojan. Abdul Malik McLean also transferred as well. USC did pick up two more additions, though. Uh, they did get Rajon Davis, the four-star linebacker, 6'1", 215 out of modern day. And then we saw him in spring, Julian Simon. He's a four-star linebacker, 6'2", 221 out of Lincoln High School in Washington. Moving on to the rest of the depth chart, if we look at the outside linebackers, you have Drake Jackson, Hunter Eccles, Juliana Fala, Nico, and Elijah Winston. And then moving to the inside linebackers, there's Kanai Mauga, Raylan Goforth, Tuasivi Namora, Raven Scott, Taylor Katoa, Micah Kroom, who's on scholarship now, Kaulana Makaula, Jordan Isefa, who we mentioned at the top of the show, and then Solomon Tulialapupu, who is in cleats for these PRPs, but we don't know how much he is doing. So when you look at the depth chart, it looks like a bunch of linebackers. It's like a smorgasbord, but how many of those are plug-and-play guys ready to go? <laughs> I'm Chris, what, what is this face I don't here? really know. I think... It's kind of the... Uh, I think... Obviously, I think the, the bigger questions are obviously, at for me, at least on the inside linebacker position, because with outside linebacker, you have, you know, Drake Jackson, he's a he's a proven commodity. You know, what he did his freshman year, made some big plays as a sophomore. When he's healthy, you know, one of the best in the Pac-12. Hunter Eccles showed a lot of things. They got him in some, some different formations, packages with Drake Jackson. He proved to be a, you know, could be an edge rusher. That was his thing in high school. Juliano Falanico, you know, taking up that kind of third-man role, from Abdul Malik McLean. We have Elijah Winston listed at outside linebacker, but I think he's more of an inside linebacker. He's versatile enough to play any of those three positions. When I talked to him in the offseason, he thought Rover was the position for him. So I would expect to be to have him to see him in that outs in that inside linebacker position. But just plug and play right now, I think it's only three for me. That sounds kind of bad, but you know, Kanai Malgo really had sort of a breakthrough season last year. Raylan Goforth. First year as a starter, I think he had some inconsistencies. He was up and down, up and down. If he can kind of find that that thread of consistency going forward, I think he can challenge to hold on to his starting job because you do have the the two freshmen coming in or have arrived. Uh, Raymond Scott, I think he proved to be an incredibly crucial part to that linebacker core, filling in when injuries hit. You know, he's been bounced around, but he still can make plays at linebacker, and I wish they would just give him a little bit more opportunity. He did so on the fly last year, learning the defense, getting back into it. Like the week before the season started, he just was thrown back in. I thought he played well. You know, he wasn't perfect, but I think you can see why he was one of the best linebackers in the nation coming out of Narbonne. Um, just a tackling machine. Still have high hopes for Taylor Katoa. Will he be able to break the two deep? I don't know. Um, and then the rest of the guys are kind of question marks for me. Just, you know, two safeties moving over. And then two guys we've talked about, Jordan and Solomon, who are kind of trying to work their way back from a lot of injuries. You look at it and you look at those two freshmen coming in and you go, 
there's opportunities for them to make their way into this lineup. New blood, fresh blood. You look at Drake Jackson, and no one's taking a spot. Corey Foreman's coming in. You don't go, well, Corey Foreman could take that spot. You go, where will they find to put him beside Drake Jackson? Drake Jackson's the only guy on that in that linebacker group where you go, no one's taking his spot. Every other spot is an open competition. Kanai Malga, you think probably going to be in there. I would argue his is pretty probably pretty i would say like 95 percent. no I, I wouldn't even i would nowhere come close to that because if jordan yosefa gets fully healthy and salman tuli alapupu get fully healthy you think those guys could break into the starting lineup but the probability of that though true but I, that's why i wouldn't put 90 percent on it um i think rajon davis could come in and he's going to get some opportunities and how quickly he develops could be you know could determine you know if he can start taking some opportunities away because he's a guy that's talented enough that you want to continue to give him more and more opportunities so that he will continue to develop. And you know, by the end of the season, does he take over a spot? That could be a possibility. So I think that those are open competition spots. Kanai Malga seems pretty set there, but I'm not even. I don't feel like it's 100 percent there either. Just because you know, there's so many. There's there are talented guys in that group. Can they get healthy? How quickly can the young guys come along? Those are big question marks. But they are, there's a lot of talent there. Can USC find a way to use all that talent? You know, can you find a way to get Raymond Scott in there for a little bit? Are there packages where he comes in? They did that a little bit last year. Now that he's more comfortable back at linebacker, do you think that there's d- different ways that you can use him? You know, Tua Sivinamore is a different type of linebacker. He was a safety in high school. You know, Taylor Katoa, is he ready to take a step forward? There's different things where you go, maybe you see a little bit more rotation this year. Maybe you use the guys in a little bit different ways. So that's something that I'm, I'm curious to see. And maybe you use the outside linebackers a little bit more because a lot of times it was only Drake Jackson on the, on the field and you were using two defensive tackles. So that kind of determined whether you had one or two outside linebackers out there. So I, I think there's some talent, but a lot of question marks still too. How much do you think a full offseason might help those who might need that time to understand the defense and, and really – work their way through it whereas I feel like last season everyone had a learning curve you know we kind of saw that linebacker progression as the season progressed and we saw the change kind of around that Arizona game and it kind of favored those who could pick it up uh really go forth in Kenai Malga now could it be more of a even playing field that more guys will have time to get fully developed and comfortable in Orlando's system? Yeah, it took a couple weeks before the linebackers were ready to go. You know, that's why Marlon Tuipolotu had so many tackles in those first couple games because the linebackers weren't in place to, you know, fill in the gap where they should or whatever it may be. It took until that Utah game, and they took a big jump forward from the Utah game on. Um, Kanai Malga was slowed during fall camp last year. That played into him. Hamstring. Um, So I, I think that... All those guys have an opportunity, and the linebackers are going to be so crucial in Todd Orlando's system because you can do so many different things with them. Do they need to protect those defensive tackles? Do they want them dropping in coverage? And that may determine how you're trying to play, You know how you're trying to use those linebackers may determine who gets those spots rather than just who's the best overall player. So if you're looking for guys that are going to be more in space or guys that are going to go up and try to attack the gaps and make tackles behind the line of scrimmage, I think there's different types of linebackers that you're looking at. And that's why I think maybe you use some different, you know, some rotations and and use some different groupings to try to get some, you know, piece together different types of linebackers at times. So that's why I think maybe you'll see a little bit more rotation. Um, But, you know, coaches like to be, almost every coach would love to have his starter and his starter play 100% of the snaps. 
but is it best for the team going forward this season and the future seasons? That's when rotation can really play a part. And maybe you see some different elements from these linebackers, and that's why you want to put them in there and rotate and do some different things. So uh, I'm curious to see where the linebacker group goes. I think right now if, if you were pegging a starting lineup, then you would say Drake Jackson starts the outside linebacker, and you'll probably have to start two defensive tackles. So Hunter Eccles is a sub, and then you start two inside linebackers with Kanai Mauga and Raylan Goforth. I don't think there's much change from last year. I don't think – I don't know if there's anyone – and this is kind of to answer your question better, Keely, is is there anyone that we think can make that big jump now that they've had that offseason, had that opportunity to to develop? Is there anyone in that group that we feel like is going to push Raylan Goforth and Kanai Malga for that spot? I think the freshmen have a much better chance than anyone that's on the roster already besides the two guys that are hurt. I don't know if this is answering your – pondering but I just had two things that I'm interested in seeing storyline wise that kind of I I get at least with a freshman kind of relate to what you're saying but one thing I've noticed about this inside linebacker group is just how much athleticism is there and sort of versatility you know I'm just looking at the roster now and it just kind of came to me like Raylan Goforth started his career as a safety to a CB Nomura kind of the same deal he's kind of like a tweener at at Centennial Raymond Scott we know has played safety at USC kind of a flex position at Narbonne too. Taylor Coteau was a freaking quarterback in his high school. Didn't know that. Yeah, he's been all over the field. Micah Kroom, Kaulana, both safeties, as we know. So a lot of a lot of interesting uh, versatility or, like, athleticism there. And then, obviously, Julian Simon was recruited as a running back and a wide receiver by some schools. Rajon Davis would play almost like a cornerback at times out of modern day. So a lot of versatility and sort of flexibility with these guys guys that can I think you know move in space get sideline to sideline and then the other point I wanted to make is this fall will be a very fascinating uh I don't want to say experiment or case study and seeing how quickly Rajon Davis picks it up as opposed to how quickly Julian Simon or how far Julian Simon looks in the fall because there were times in the spring where because I was very high on Julian Simon I thought he would be a factor more in in the two deep early but he was thought he would be the breakout star this yeah I I, I I i doubled down on that so I, I i'm looking for big things uh for this this fall but it seemed like he was kind of getting his feet wet it took a little time to get comfortable look like a i don't know like a deer trying to learn how to run or whatever i I'm, that's not a that's not a great example but you know what i'm saying it, it took there was a learning curve he was i don't want to say slow to catch on just like you're a freshman learning a defense in college. It's going to take time. And I didn't sort of factor that in as much as I should have. But now I'm interested to see, interested to see how quickly he comes along in the fall, having had the whole full, having had a full spring to learn, having had these extra couple of months in the summer to run PRPs and get there. While Davis, he wasn't early enrollee. He played his spring season in high school. How much that plays into him because Julian Simon did not get us get a senior season he jumped straight to high school so I'm interested to see how that plays will Davis have a little more confidence and pick things up a little bit more I don't know will he have this, a, a similar slow start to Simon just because you know it's it's this Todd Orlando, Todd Orlando defense there's a lot of ins and outs with the with the middle linebacker position and you got to get those down packed so I'm interested to see what happens there so I'm going to be following those freshmen uh, pretty closely so to your first point, I think about the athleticism of the group, 
I think that tells you where this linebacker position is going in the future. That's what they're looking for in recruiting. That's what they're going after. You're not looking for a six foot two, 260 pound linebacker that's just coming straight downhill. Which then, you know, Kanai Malga is not a guy that's the guy that you want to run sideline to sideline necessarily. So does that put his position in in peril? Does it put him in, you know, a position where is that what they want from that spot? That could be a question mark there, even though he's the most experienced guy. And then to the freshmen, you think back to last year and the linebackers had one spring practice, one walkthrough basically, and then they basically had, what, five to six weeks before they started picking up, before that Utah game. So you look at Julian Simon, and we started to see him come on a little bit at the end, fifth week or so. So is he ready to go at the beginning of fall camp? Does it take Rajon Davis throughout the duration of, of fall camp, and then first or second week he starts to pick it up a little bit better, and then they start inserting him a little bit into the lineup? Maybe that's what you see because Todd Orlando puts a lot on the linebackers. You know, it's his position. This happens at any with any coordinator. They put the most almost – always on their position that they're coaching you know they're they're asking that group to learn the most you know I I can teach you up more better than I trust the other coaches to teach you up at the other position so um, I I think that plays into it and I think maybe that's something you see so then you look at who's on this roster still is Raymond Scott you know he's had that time is he ready to take a jump you know there's a guy like Kalana McCullough I think that's he's an interesting guy I don't think he's going to break into the too deep necessarily but it wouldn't shock me if he did. You know, he's a guy that made plays the couple of times that he's been in the game at, at safety for USC in the past. And the fact that they're looking for those athletic bodies, if he picks it up quickly, maybe he's a guy that gets in the mix too. So, you know, it's going to be an intriguing position to watch because there's a lot of moving pieces and because not everything's locked down, which is kind of this whole defense. There's very few spots that are, are really locked down uh, going into fall camp. But I think we feel pretty confident with the three guys at linebacker, and we'll see who can push. It's going to be a question more of who can push up to that group, whether than more than, you know, can those three guys win their spots or hold on to their spots. I think that's right on the money. But I think when we, for me at least, when we say can these people make the, or can these people push for push these these three guys or whoever how many guys? I think we're referring to the freshmen. I'm referring to the rest of the, the entire rest. But of the for group. me, I think it's the freshmen. Yeah, I I'm not really confident that anyone else is really going to push. I mean, wait and see. But I think it's more so on the freshmen. I think the expectations are on the freshmen to be on that two deep by like middle of the season. We'll see. We'll see. Famous last words. Can you say that, though, based on what we were just talking about, about how the learning curve for younger guys with the linebacker position or the inside linebacker I, I don't position? know. For all I know, Rajon Davis is a freaking servant, and he's already on the second team. He's already mastered it, for all I know. And then maybe he's already at the level of Julian Simon, and Julian Simon has already taken the jump this offseason. And they're both operating on the twos. I don't know. He's doubling down. One of the things with Julian Simon that you mentioned but I think should get a little bit more uh, weight is that he didn't play a senior season. There's going, there's you got to shake off the rust for a week or two, and then you start trying to learn a little bit quicker. So, I think you saw that a little bit with Miller Moss as well. I think Julian Simon's another guy. So, the guys that didn't get that senior season, I think that they were a little a step behind, even though they got spring. You know, they were a step behind in spring. Now, they'll have they kind of have a half step up on the guys that are coming in the fall, I feel like, instead of being fully, you know, full bore going from 
a 12 game, 15 game season in the fall. And then, you know, having like two or three months off and moving right into spring ball, it was a long time off for them. They had to shake off the rest, do all that stuff. So I think that played into Julian Simon not taking a big jump forward as quickly as we thought he might. Tripling down on Julian Simon, that's all. You, can, you may move on. Yeah, I said doubling down, but you're right. It's tripling down. All right, let's move to the final grouping defensive backs. At departure, some notable ones, Elijah Griffin and Talano Hufunga were lost to the NFL draft. Now, everyone, buckle up. We're going to go through the additions that USC has at defensive back. First up, as I noted last week, USC got an addition, quote-unquote, with Josh Jackson. He moved over uh, from wide receiver to cornerback. And then here we go, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Prophet Brown, the four-star, he's 5'10", 180. Jalen Smith, the four-star, 5'11", 180. Sierra Wright, four-star, 6'1", 175. Also, LeBron James' pseudo-son in Space Jam, so <laughs> add that to the, the list. Anthony Beavers, we saw him in spring. He's a four-star, 6'1", 195. Kalen Bullock, he also was in spring camp, four-star, 6'1", 175. Zamarian Gordon was also in spring. He's a four-star, 6'2", 190. And then the transfer, Xavion Alford, redshirt freshman. He transferred from Texas prior to spring camp, so we did see him get some playing time in camp. He was a four-star safety in the 2020 class. He was rated number eighth nationally. And then finally, Chris Thompson Jr. He's a redshirt freshman who transferred from Auburn. He's 6'2", 199. He was a four-star prospect in the 2020 class and rated 17th nationally as a safety prospect. So a lot of bodies. Which is a good thing because if you remember our reports from spring camp, it was basically SOS for the, the cornerback position. There was just no one there at <laughs> for most of camp. So looking at the depth chart at corner, you have Chris Steele, Isaac Taylor Stewart, Jaden Williams, Adonis Ote, and Dorian Hewitt. At the safety position, you have Isaiah Polamau, Chase Williams, Britton Allen, Greg Johnson, and then Max Williams. He's out with an ACL, so he has an asterisk by his name. So... Overall, if you take out the additions, it's kind of light as far as all of the defensive backs, but then you add in the additions, and I guess you're hoping that some of those young guys and the transfers are plug-and-play. The defensive backs feel, to me, like the exact opposite of the linebackers, where you have a bunch of these old guard recruits with a sprinkle of new blood, while you have a lot of new blood at the defensive backs with a sprinkle of this old guard. What I notice is that there are so many defensive backs. Now, granted, they could put five on the field. They could put six on the field. They could put six safeties on the field at one time. They did it some last year. But you have 19 defensive backs in this group. Now, take out Max Williams. you got 18 guys that are going to be vying for playing time this fall. And all those guys, there's only one or two where you go, yeah, that guy doesn't really have a chance to get a spot. Everyone else, you go, I'm curious to see what he does in the fall. Where will they play him? A lot with the you know the new guys that are coming in. Where exactly is this guy going to line up? Which safety spot? The new guys that weren't here in the spring, Jalen Smith, Sierra Wright, and Prophet Brown could all play cornerback, and that could help you know lighten the load there where there were just weren't enough bodies at cornerback in the spring at times. So you know I think that there's a lot of things that are we're looking forward to and are looking forward to in kind of in just an intrigued, interested way rather than going, oh, that could be a problem. Like there are some other spots. Like the nose tackle spot, you look at it and go, oh, that could be a big issue for USC. The defensive back, you're like, I just wonder who's going to win these battles. But I feel like there's going to be someone talented enough that's going to take over the spot and is going to play really well there. Um, it's going to be, I think those might be the most compelling battles of the fall camp because 
I think that there's a lot of talented players there, and whoever wins out, you know, I think is going to play well. But I, I think that there's plenty of guys that are going to be vying for each of those spots. The only ones that really feel like they're locked up are Chris Steele and Isaiah Polamau. I would feel pretty confident with saying Isaac Taylor Stewart as well, especially the developments we saw in the spring. I just want to see it continue. I want to see him continue the progress that he was making in the spring and continue, you know, showing that he should be the guy as a shutdown cornerback. But besides that, you, you kind of feel like it's a little bit open out there. And maybe you see more rotation because there's guys we want to get on the field. And the coaching staff is looking at it and like, how do I get this guy in there? How do I get how do I find a way to, you know, to get Jalen Smith in there? How do I find a way to get Sierra Wright some some reps? And that's the type of things that you would see with Adoree Jackson and Iman Marshall and those guys. Like, we gotta find ways to get those guys a series, two series, and as the season progressed, you know, their freshman year, their true freshman year, then they would, you know, they'd get it three or four or five series for a game. Um, so I think you may see some of that this season. And, you know, who's going to pair up with Isaiah Polamau? Now, I talked with Isaiah Polamau today, and he talked about how he's, you know, one of the things he's been working on the most this offseason is working on his man coverage skills because he knows he's going to play some in the slot. So he knows he's going to play over the top as well. They're going to move those safety spots around. So you're going to have to be you're going to have to have some versatility this year at the at the safety position. They're not just going to leave Isaiah Pullum out at the top of the defense and just have him play center field. They're going to move guys around and we're going to see a little bit more moving parts it sounds like. Not to be too harsh here, but I know he was working on his man coverage when he was playing nickel in spring camp and it didn't seem like it was the best fit there. No, it's it would seem like it was his first time playing in that spot. Which it was. <laughs> so I think that what you're going to see is that instead of the safety spots being, okay, this is going to move all over the field, Isaiah's going to stay at the top of the defense, now they're going to feel more comfortable to, as the offense shifts, if there's a motion or something, then they'll just shift the entire defense. Instead of having to send someone across the formation or whatever, they'll just rotate the safeties, and that all three safeties will be asked to play in all three of those positions at the top of the defense, in the post, and in the nickel spot as well. So instead of the nickel kind of being its own separate position, and that was Greg Johnson and Max Williams, and they weren't really, you know, it was a different position than the safeties, I think now it's going to be three safeties, and one of them will be lining up in the nickel. And that's something we saw a little bit from Clancy Pendergast. You know, when he played the three nickel alignment with Leon McQuay, with Chris Hawkins, and with Marvell Tell, is that times, you know, one guy would go out in, into the slot to guard a guy, and then if the that guy went into motion or something, you would see a rotation, and that guy would, you know, push back and become the guy at the top of the defense. So it puts a lot of emphasis on those safeties to know three different spots, but also know the entire defense to know where they need to be if they do a rotation like that, rather than, hey, I just got one guy that I'm covering. So that may be a factor in who wins out those other two spots besides Isaiah Polamau is who picks up the defense the quickest. You know, so Zayvon Alford, he was a guy, Isaiah Polamau told me he's a guy that took a big jump later in camp. And, you know, he's a guy that kind of impressed him. And he said Zay impressed him. And I said, well, is that Zayvon Alford? Is that you? Did you impress yourself? <laughs> because he goes, Zay, Isaiah goes by Zay as well. Or Samarian Gordon, maybe they would call him Zay as well. You know, so <laughs> there's three different guys that could be there. So it's going to be really interesting with Zayvon Alford, where does he stand after the spring? You know, getting his feet wet, getting an opportunity to see where he's going to be using the defense. Chris Thompson coming in, a guy who played at Auburn and got some playing time as a true freshman last year. 
Where do those guys fit in? Can Chase Williams hold off those guys for a spot? Is Greg Johnson back fully healthy? He's been full go in the PRPs that we've seen, at least from what we can see. Um, but is he going to be able to lock down a spot? Yeah, I think there's a lot of moving parts that are potential there. And can one of the guys jump up? You know, Dorian Hewitt's a guy as a freshman who looked like by year three he would be potentially starting. He would be in that mix. He would at least be in a rotation. New coaching staff. He didn't get a bunch of playing time last year. But he, he had some big plays in the spring as well. Is he a guy that steps forward? There's some guys like that that I'm curious to see where they're at. And I think it's just going to be a very intriguing group of 19 players to watch this spring because I think there's a ton of talent, but I don't really know who's going to win out. That's a lot to digest. <laughs> I need a Tums. <laughs> I'm bringing a Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah. I wonder if people like are able to listen to you on a higher speed than one. Shotgun through a lot at everyone in this room and listening. So I'm not going to try to inundate you with more. <laughs> but kind of the few people I'm really intrigued to see are Chris Thompson Jr. Just because we didn't get to see him in the spring. Obviously, he's a summer enrollee. I'm fascinated to see where he lines up. Is he playing more in the back end? Is he going to be trying to compete with Greg Johnson sort of helping fill in for the loss of Max Williams down there. I know the three the three spring enrollees, Anthony Beavers, Kalen Bullock, Examarion Golden Gordon, they kind of uh established themselves in the two deep. Uh mostly in the spring. They were getting a lot of reps there, a lot of uh special teams uh play. So I feel like that's where they're kind of get to make their mark. And you know, like you said, 18, 18 defensive backs, a lot of those guys are probably going to play on special teams. That's mm-hmm, where we're going to make definitely. their that's where we're going to make their money. Prophet Brown, Jalen Smith, you know, just listening to what Dante Williams had to say about his cornerback class. I believe it was right before spring camp. He he did a tunnel vision with us. I believe that's where he was he was talking about it. He kind of said that he's excited to get Prophet Brown and guys like Jalen Smith, guys that played both ways in high school, just because they when you play offense and defense, you don't have a lot of time to focus on the defense. So he really wanted to get them in and kind of get them focused on playing cornerback, safety, whatever it may be. That tells me that I don't expect them to really be factors on the defensive this early. So I think they're going to take some time to develop them more. I mean, you guys like a Jaden Williams, a, a Dorian Hewitt, a Josh Jackson was – pretty good so i think they're gonna have to try to leap those older guys so i feel like those guys are gonna be more way down on the depth chart trying to develop into cornerbacks after playing both ways in high school and then his comments on sierra Wright. i think sierra Wright is the big one for me i feel confident that it will be chris Steele and isaac taylor stewart isaac taylor stewart looks like a million bucks saw him out there today looks great looks like the part where we saw him out of high school with his blue chip prospect this six foot two built him in a lab kind of dude you want to see him put it all together. But Sierra Wright is an interesting person to me because he is the highest rated uh, defensive back in this class, a top 100 prospect. He's long. He's got track speed, uh, six foot one, 175. The way Dante talked about him, same way he talked about all his other guys when he was breaking down his class, you know, he expects Sierra to be on the field. That's what he said. I expect him to be on the field. And if he's not, you know, that's on me. And that's also partially on him. Because he has the talent to be on the field, and i got to get him ready to be on the field. So for me, I think Sierra Wright is going to certainly be on the two deep. That's how I view his comments. I think he's trying to get him ready to be in the rotation. Maybe sort of like, 
a couple years ago where we had Chris Steele, Isaac Taylor Stewart, and Elijah Griffin kind of rotating in that three-man job. Maybe not as much as that, but I feel like Sierra is definitely going to get time this year, assuming he does the work to get on the field. I know he's missed. He hasn't been at the last two PR, PRPs, assuming for Space Jam. Space Jam. But he is a summer enrollee. That was something yes, we yes, weren't yes, sure yes. about. So he has been on campus. He has been doing workouts. You know, LeBron playing LeBron James' son is a whole other set of responsibilities <laughs> that comes with that. You know, uh, so I'm really intrigued to see. But Chris Thompson, Sierra Wright, those are kind of the two guys I really want to see in the fall. What's interesting is that Sierra Wright also played both ways in high school. Yeah, but you didn't hear him lumped in the same mix w- with the other guys as far as those comments from Dante Williams. Yeah. So he had, and maybe this is even a little bit of mind games early is that he was pushing Sierra Wright from you know from those comments like, "Hey, I'm expecting you to come in." And look what I said about you differently. I need you to be putting in the work this offseason type of thing. Um, so from seeing Sierra right this spring, I think he's got some work to do before he's ready. And that's partly because playing both ways and everything. And it was also the first game I saw him, you know, against playing for Loyola. It was the first game of the season. So how much did the rust play into that? But it's going to be very intriguing. There's a lot of talent there. It's going to be fun to watch because you know that it's going to be super competitive. Dante is super competitive. He's going to push those guys to be super competitive. So I think it's it's going to be a really fun mix. And like you said, special teams, you should see a lot of these guys chasing punts on kickoff coverage. And that may may elevate somebody. What you do on special teams, you know, people forget about how important special teams are to coaches and how they know how important those extra yardage that you have in special teams. And Dante is a guy that is going to be observant about what you're doing on special teams, and they may boost you up a little bit further past somebody who might be making a couple more plays in practice at defensive back. But are you making plays on special teams in a game? That's going to be a, a big difference. And I did sort of start out by noting that Prophet and Jalen may be a little bit more developmental with the cornerback, but they can be dynamic with the ball in their hands. So I would not be surprised if they got some looks on special teams as returners. I don't know if it's punt, but like Prophet Brown as a kick returner, that's an intriguing thing. Mm-hmm. He also has some track speed, was recruited as a running back out of high school. Jalen was an athlete, listed as an athlete before kind of settling more into a kind of cornerback safety, safety duels, a dual role. Um, so those are names to know for the, for the return jobs or cause there is some openings. And we will get into that next week. When we do our special teams preview. Previewing Plug. the special teams preview. Just wanted to <laughs> yes. throw that out there. Preview the preview, of course. I guess the only points I can make are, are the scraps left over for me. And that's totally fine. I'm used to it at this point. But um, I'm really curious where Chase Williams fits in all this. Because I feel like in spring he was a guy who... There's always some guys who, in between that fall season spring camp zone... They're kind of like, okay, this is this is it for me. I gotta I gotta really step it up, or else I'm just gonna get lost in the depth chart. And I feel like Chase was a guy who at least had that that I don't don't want to say light turn on because I don't want to say Clay Heltonism, <laughs> but he stepped up in a leadership role. He was a very vocal guy in spring camp. I'm just curious where he fits in all of this because I don't know. Like you said, I don't think he has a spot locked down, but I'm just curious because he's presenting himself like a guy who expects one. Yeah, I mean. Uh- Again, Chase Williams and Greg Johnson could easily lock down starting roles along with Isaiah Polamal, Chris Steele, Isaac Taylor-Stewart. You bring in this huge DB class, and you could still have the same five guys. That you know, Coming off the season, you said those would be the five guys you expect to start. So it's, I wouldn't be, wouldn't be shocked by that either because I think 
Greg Johnson is a guy who's made plays year after year in that corner, uh, that nickelback, that nickel safety slot position. Is he back 100%? Is the MCL healed? You know, is he healthy? Is he moving around the way you expect him to move? You know, it's going to be hard for someone to beat that then, you know, because there's experience there. Is Chase Williams ready to step in? I wouldn't be surprised. He's a guy who has playing time. That's the one thing those two guys have over everyone else on this roster except for Zayvon Alford and Chris Thompson have a little bit, but those guys have much more experience than those two, and they have a year more in the defense. So, you know, they have a leg up. It's going to take, you know, one of those young guys, it's going to take a, you know, they're going to have to make some big strides to take over those spots. Exactly what you said about the experience being sort of an advantage for guys like Chase Williams and a Greg Johnson. I had them both also on my top 25 right there at the bottom, kind of that 24-23 spot. Just because they do have the experience, there's a lot of inexperience, especially at the safety position, at the nickel position, especially after you you know lose a guy like Max Williams. So I, I put I valued in my top twenty five countdown. I valued their experience, the number of appearances they've had, the starts that they have. It's not like a crazy number of starts, but it starts nonetheless. Especially when you have all these new freshmen. About like nine of them have never played a college game. So I think that's valuable, and that's why I had them on the top 25. Because even if they do lose uh, their positions, like like you said, Chase has been sort of operated as that other safety in spring most of the camp. And Greg, you know, you're assuming he can kind of slide back into that starting job with a good fall camp. Even if they don't win out those jobs, I still think they're going to be valuable on the two deep and backup roles, rotation, whatever. So I think they're, they still bring a lot of value to this team, even if they're they're not starting. Yeah, and Kalen Bullock has obviously got to put some weight onto his frame, but he's a guy that made some plays. They moved him around. He played some cornerback. He's a guy that has some versatility, but you got to put on that weight. You know, Sierra Wright, Jalen Smith, those guys are coming in. They're going to have to put on weight because you're going to get beat up if they're in the. You know, if they're going through a full game, you know, they're not going to be able to take the hits that you expect when you have. You know, you get a Josh Adams from Notre Dame running back coming downhill or like a Toby Gerhardt of years past from Stanford. Like you get one of those guys coming downhill and it's coming at Kalen Bullock or it's coming at Jalen Smith. You got to be able to dive and take out the ankles. But if you end up shoulder to shoulder, you're probably going down for a week or two. So it's going to be important for those guys to be doing their work in the weight room as well to stay healthy. So, you know, they got 18, 19 guys going into fall camp. How many of those guys are going to be healthy at the end of fall camp too? That could be play a role into you know the special teams and the two deep as well. Now zooming out, one of the biggest storylines for me is just what is this defensive staff? What are they able to do with a full quote unquote normal off season? That's something that I think they didn't want to talk about as much as they probably should have for how difficult it was, but. That's something that definitely hindered what they were able to do. And prior to the pandemic, they talked about how much they have to install a culture and a mindset, and they had to do that kind of on the fly. What will they be able to do when they have a more, quote-unquote, regular progression of things? I mean, we saw it in the spring with sort of the hitting mm-hmm. and those, what is it called, Trojan, Trojan, Trojan drill? drill? Trojan drill. We saw that being laid out for fall. We saw that for... You know, the defensive side, not yapping, but getting each other hyped up. They had this. Suck, suck, suck. They had this. How are you the one yelling it? Because you hated that. (laughs) Because I hated so much. He's (laughs) trolling. He had, they had this sort of identity being 
forged in the spring, this, I mean, that's the best way I can put it, this identity being molded. And we saw that being established in, in spring, the toughness, the hitting, the not being afraid to hit and really punching people in the mouth. That's kind of what we saw being forged in, in spring. So will it continue? That's yeah, the big I mean, question. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you can do Trojan drills and you can stop practice and do special drills in the spring. Are you going to continue some of that stuff for the fall camp? Are you going to get set in your routine at the after the fir- at first week once you finally get pads on and third practice, you have your first practice, all right, now we got to get our routine, get set for the season like Clay Helton has liked to do in the past. Now, you can still do that and do a lot of the things that they've done. Can you incorporate a Trojan drill every once in a while in fall camp, once a week or something, just to mix things up, be willing to change your practice pro, uh, program every once in a while, especially if you see some lacking, you know, if you see some sluggishness, which is what happens in the middle of a fall camp. Can you mix things up to continue to forge that identity, to continue to push that identity forward, or are you going to backtrack? That's going to be a big question for this team as a whole, but especially on the defensive side. And maybe the defensive side can continue and the offense doesn't. That'll be, you know, we'll see how both sides progress because I thought the offense took steps forward as well, being tougher this, this spring. And it all started with the way their practice plans and how they played those things out. I think that one of the big things is you should see more development than we saw last year just because you have a normal offseason. Yeah. You have the weight room. You know, remember, there was a long stretch of time in 2020 where they couldn't work out as a team. They couldn't work out, you know, inside. They couldn't do the normal things. So that, you know, it, you have to change your workouts and routines and all that type of stuff. You're pulling trucks, all this random stuff. It's not the same as what they would want to be doing. You, you don't see college football teams pulling trucks just for fun as a summer workout anytime because it's not a functional movement that's going to help you during the fall. Now, you do what you can with the limitations that the pandemic set, but now that they've been able to go through a normal offseason, talk with Isaiah Polamau, one of the interesting things he said about their workouts is they're doing a lot more of the functional explosiveness and stuff, and that's stuff that you couldn't do without training as a group, without being able to set up the cones and do all the different things. Uh, They're doing some strange drills as well. One of the interesting ones he told me is that they're carrying their teammates at times. So whether that's, you know, piggyback style or, you know, cross over their back or carrying them in their arms, but carrying their teammates back and forth for it's sprints and stuff. Maybe it's a metaphor and as well. That, and they're doing that after practice, too, at the very end. So they're already dead. Why yeah. do I feel like Chris is going to suggest that we do this as a bonding activity? <laughs> no, I don't want to carry you. <laughs> Way too much right now for anyone to be carrying me. So we'll keep you guys from from that pain. But, no, they're doing different things like that. You've seen the, the tug of wars and stuff like that, which is a morale thing, but it's also it's, – there's the metaphor there. But there's also just the strength of it because, okay, guess what? In a game, if you're a running back, you might have someone jump on your back and you have to carry them. You know, it's going to be a defender instead of your teammate, and they're going to be trying to pull you down. But that's a strength, and that's a something that's going to be happening in a game. It's actually a functional <laughs> strength. For in in game activities, so it, you know they're doing some different things to mix it up, obviously. But you're hearing a lot about functional strength training. So I'm hoping to see that the team takes a step forward there as well. Now that you have a normal off season, so what steps of development in the weight room, but then also on the field as well. Okay, you just did another shotgun barrage. So there's like points I have to make throughout what you just said. Circling back to mindset and whatnot. This really is where the rubber is going to meet the road with the defensive staff, 
their whole mindset, their toughness, and the Clay Helton fall camp slowdown that we've seen every <laughs> single season. I'm really curious because I, I don't think we can really count 2020 because even Todd Orlando acknowledged that you couldn't, he couldn't do everything he wanted to do because obviously he had to save bodies for the season. What are we going to see in fall camp? How is that clash? How is that going to work out? I'm very curious. And I think the defensive guys have brought this new energy that is persuasive enough that I think we might be able to see a difference. It's the old immovable object versus the unstoppable force. And also, when you rack up 20 guys that are nicked up, are you going to continue? Now, in spring, you can do that because you got nicked up guys. All right, you know, they'll get better by fall. But are you going to pull back the reins and say, oh, we got to have guys healthy for the game? Or do you need to install that culture? Is that more important the first three weeks of camp or whatever, you know, whatever set date that you want to have? That's going to be an important thing to see because, and maybe even one of the culture things is, are you hurt or are you injured? Mm. Can you be out there or do you need to be in the ice tub, you know, working on rehab island or whatever it may be? Are you going to see 25 or 30 guys that aren't able to practice? Or are you going to see some guys that maybe you can't do everything, but can you be out there and give us 80% during practice because you need to be going through the plays, you need to be doing everything else. You know, those are the type of things that we'll be curious to watch. You know, that's the overarching thing that, you know, is kind of big question mark going in the fall. Can you continue what you started in the spring or was it a blip on the radar? And then we're still going through the shotgun barrage. Even okay. if that was one in itself. Just to pad your point about the whole COVID issues and whatnot. I talked to Kobe Pepe today, like I said, and he was saying, this offseason, PRP's in particular, is the first time he's getting to meet people outside of uh, the the defensive tackles. He was like, it was kind of less overwhelming to only know five or ten people last season. So he was like, I'm talking to Jackson Dart today. He's a cool dude. Like, So the fact that Kobe Pepe, a new freshman, true freshman, came in and didn't know his other teammates because of protocols and whatnot, that's pretty crazy. I think that goes back to the culture of the team now as well. In spring, you can build a full culture rather than, hey, we're building a great culture in this this position room yeah. and in this position room. But is that, you know, is that being pervasive throughout the entire locker room? So maybe you saw in the spring, maybe it is a good sign what we saw in the spring. But what's interesting, though, is that they alluded to the team chemistry and the team bonding to how they were able to come back so many times in, in late in the games in 2020. So I'm curious how much of that then builds upon itself. And you got to do it with a lot of new faces on the roster too. When you bring in what seven transfers and a full recruiting class, you know, there there's a good number of people new on this roster. That's something that's really interesting to me because it seems like a lot of new faces for me, but I think a lot of USC fans are going to have to get kind of used to the faces they will see at the start of the season because with the amount of transfers that USC brought in, it's going to be a lot of new faces that people aren't familiar with. Yeah, there should be a good number of new faces that can make immediate impacts. Now, everyone recognizes Corey Foreman's face right now, but do you recognize Jalen Smith or Prophet Brown or Sierra Wright and one of those guys gets in the mix of the cornerback position? Do you re recognize Kobe Pepe or Jamar Sakona? You know, those guys may make Im immediate impacts. Even though those guys are redshirt freshmen, I don't think many of the USC fans really 
have an understanding of the redshirt freshman class either and know those guys by face because you don't have the normal events that you would have where you may, you know, the Trojan walk and you see players, who's that, and you find out and you kind of recognize them or, you know, the Trojan dinners, those type things. So I think a lot of USC fans are going to be looking at the, you know, you better print out the roster sheet when you go to the game or when you're watching for the first game. Wait, well, who is 77? Who is 94? You know, as you're going through the game, you're going to be wanting to look and, you know, be able to pinpoint people. Um, because it's it's a lot of turnover from the last time fans were be able to, to be in the stands and be able to see the team up close. All righty. Well, I think we covered the defense pretty extensively. Thank you, Shotgun, for that. And Chris, you did a great job as well. Let's jump into some questions. First one up is from Mario Fowler, who said, had a question about a potential lineup. Could you see a pass rush group of Nick Figueroa, Tuli Tuipolotu, Drake Jackson, and Corey Foreman all on the field at the same time? Would this be only a third and long situation, or could this four be a regular rotation? I mean, we kind of talked about that already, but just using the strength of this team, which is sort of your your defensive ends and these potentially lethal pass rushing combinations. So absolutely, we could see that. Could it be, you know, the starting four? I don't know, but I think we'll definitely see formations where we have at least Corey Foreman, Drake Jackson, and Nick Figueroa on the field at the same time. Yeah, I, I think the Greyhound, uh, I think is what it's been called. I don't remember if that was this staff or the previous staff, but that's your pass rush, your fast guys, um, third and long situations. I think you're going to see those three guys. I think you're going to see Hunter Eccles. That would be my guess for the four. Now, maybe, you know, who goes inside? Who has to do that? Maybe Jacob Lichtenstein stays on the field as an inside guy. You could see some differences, some variances there, but I think those four are going to be in the mix for sure. I think that you're going to be able to mix and match um, maybe even more so than you have been able in the past because I think that there's some skill sets there, you know, especially getting to the passer. We got a question from Stevie, and it's something we've I think we've addressed in multiple podcasts. He says, "Why is USC having Why is USC having trouble recruiting wide receivers? It seemed like USC would be able to sign a top wide receiver every class, even on a down year. Is Kerry Colbert just not able to connect with kids on the recruiting trail?" We uh, well, I, we touched on that the last time I was on the podcast. We touched on it last week too. So I have a feeling this is going to be a running thread throughout the season. Because it doesn't seem like they're putting in the same work that other staffs are putting in to recruit the wider the wide receivers locally. You know, USC has decided that we're going to go out and find guys in the transfer portal that have already produced, that have already shown they can do it at the college level, and they're not bringing in even the local you know top end talent at the wide receiver position. So they've kind of gone a different way because they're not making the same connections that they're making on the defensive side with the defensive backs and with the defensive linemen. So is that Kerry Colbert just not putting in the same legwork as those guys? I'm not exactly sure, but there's definitely they're not making the same amount of there's the same amount of connections with the wide receivers locally or on a national level that they're doing on the defensive side for sure. We got a question from Nick who says recently heard something mentioned about a recruits quote unquote circle of influence. That would have been the war room last week. If you guys are reading, you should be subscribed so you can read that. You didn't even read it last week. I read that part. Getting smaller. <laughs> Outside of family, who is typically in those circles? Also, has anyone asked you about O-line recruiting this week? Face with tears of joy. Not sure exactly what that means, Nick, but no, they haven't. It was an emoji that apparently converted. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes more sense. So apparently it's a joke. Does asking me about O-line recruiting include can he play 
Offensive tackle? <laughs> then yes. Yeah, that was on a basketball recruiting story that, right. that Chris wrote. And I said, well, he's six foot eight, two fifty, so <laughs> maybe. All right, so let's go to the first question. The circle of influence outside of family, who is that typically? Sometimes that doesn't even include family. It it all is about who has the player's ear? You know, who does the player trust? You know, depending on the family situation, it's not always mom or dad. Sometimes it's, you know, your, both of your parents are there and they're helping you make the decision. But that's not always the case. Every family is different. Sometimes it's big brother. You know, big brother is the one that's gone through the recruiting process before. So he can tell you the ins and outs of it. Sometimes it's an uncle or grandfather, you know, whoever the guardian of, of uh, a child can be. There's a lot of different ways. And that's why Ed Orgeron would always talk about you have to, that's the most important thing is to find out who you're recruiting, not just which prospects you're recruiting, but then who of the prospects, uh, family or, you know, immediate circle are you recruiting uh, to try to get that player to come to your school because you got to recruit grandma or your auntie or whoever it may be. You know, you got to recruit someone else besides just the player because the player's never just making the decision on their own. There's always a circle of influence, whether it, you know, sometimes it's, just the parents, mom and dad, that's it. Sometimes it's 15 people, you know, and there's a posse, there's friends. It's, you know, it just depends on who has the ear of the player and how much, you know, sway they have with that player. Sometimes it's a coach, you know, it's a seven-on-seven coach, a, you know, a youth coach, it just whoever the player trusts. It's all about the trust factor. And sometimes when a player moves high schools, that's when that circle of influence can sometimes change. And, you know, that's when, you know, as a recruiter, you just have to be on top of all those things. So when you see a kid transfer high schools, you got to be on top of okay, now who has the kid's ear? Who's you know who's the the kid trusts at this new school? Is it the same? Is it someone different? You have to keep all those things in mind. And we have one final question. It comes from Steve. He says, "Shotgun, what is it that's keeping USC baseball from being competitive? Is it the limited number of scholarships combined with the high price of walking on? Other private universities seem to make it to Omaha. What's up with the Trojans?" This has been discussed ad nauseum on the P, and everyone that says they should just get rid of baseball and get a different program in there, don't even don't even have baseball if they're not going to be competitive. Just just quit. Just just stop. Just stop right now. I'm tired of reading it. I'm tired of seeing it. Just quit. They're not going to get rid of the most historic college baseball program in the history of the sport. Twelve national championships. Is it more difficult now? Yes, because. Title IX came in, and then they cut the number of scholarships that a baseball program could have. It's 11.7. That makes it very difficult for um, for any program to be able to put together a roster of 35 players. It's that much more difficult because you're giving partial scholarships. You're giving you're very few full-ride scholarships, so it makes it that much more difficult when it's $60,000 to go per year. If you were a good baseball player and you live in Southern California and it costs – I don't know the numbers, but say it's twenty thousand to go to Cal State Fullerton as an in-state student versus sixty thousand to go to a private university of USC. Even if you're getting fifty percent at USC, you're still it's still costing more if you have no scholarship to go to Cal State Fullerton. So that's a big part of it. Now, other private universities, Vanderbilt's the one that everyone wants to point to. Stanford's one. They have really good programs that help anyone that you know needs financial aid. So if your parents make under a certain threshold at Stanford, if you live in the state of California and your parents make under a certain threshold, at Stanford you get free tuition. There's a similar program at Vanderbilt. There's similar ones at Georgia, LSU that are funded through the lottery. So those, you know, in the, the, both of those states, that really helps those programs. 
because then you can get a kid who's on 100% financial aid because of this other financial aid, and it doesn't count towards your 11.7 scholarships you're allowed to have, you're allowed to give out. Now, the NCA has said that teams can start to stack academic and athletic scholarship for partial scholarship sports. I believe that started this past year, but that's going to be huge for USC because now if you can qualify and get academic scholarship, then you can add that to whatever USC's baseball program can give, and that shortens the, the amount of money that, that it costs. So that's, there's been some big changes since USC was a powerhouse. Can they still compete? Yes. And Jason Gill in 2020, they were off to a great start. The season gets canceled. It was his first season this past year. There were a lot of challenges for them, including all the issues with the pandemic. They didn't get off to a great start, similar to some other programs that didn't get full practice schedules, while other schools across the nation did. They struggled early, and then you know they had some issues with some suspensions and different things. So this season ended up being washed away. I think that Jason Gill and you know the staff that he has can compete and compete in the Pac-12. We'll see where they go next year, though. Um, it, it's something that has been a constant struggle for USC, but if you get the right coach in, then they can win at any program. And that's just that's going to be the big thing for USC. Is this the right coaching staff, and can they, you know, can they recruit guys? It's the most difficult thing in all of college athletics is recruiting Division One baseball because you're dealing not only with the draft, kids can come out of high school and go not only with the 11.7 scholarships, but then you're dealing with you know how much money. Is a, does a player that you expect to leave after his junior year because he goes into the draft and most kids leave after their junior year? You're dealing with all types of things there and trying to do it with 11.7 scholarships for a 30- to 35-man roster. It's just ridiculous to try to do. Um, and now you're going to have NIL stuff that adds to it. There's just going to be so many different things. And so it's a difficult thing to do. And you have to identify these players four years before they're going to step on campus. A lot of the kids are committing as freshmen or sophomore. So you have to picture, okay, that guy's throwing 82 left in and now. Is that going to be 90 in three years or not? Uh, so that's what you're doing. And so USC has had some quality players, but they haven't had first-round picks like you know some other schools. UCLA just had the best recruiting class in the nation, basically, and kept almost everybody through the draft. USC hasn't been able to do that consistently. So that's what they have to do. they got to recruit a little bit better, but also financial aid makes it very difficult to, to win at a private university. Whew. I think this is the first time in my history of knowing you that I was scared you might pass out from your own answer. It was close. It's a long rant. That, that, it all goes into it. Um, if they get the right coaching staff and they recruit well, then they can compete. And I think that you know they were right on the right path in 2020, and unfortunately the season – you know, got shut down. They beat the defending national champions, had two top 25 wins the weekend before the season shut down. So uh, they were they were playing really well. We'll see what they can do next year when they have a full offseason. All righty, gentlemen. That's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Next week we have Pac-12 Media Day. Got one. Timson in a late question. I'll leave it just for you guys so that the answers will be shorter. He said, I know it's early, but how many yards will Ingram gain on the ground? 980. Ooh. Closing in on a thousand yard season. Haven't had that since Rojo. I don't think said where made it there. Got close, but not quite. I'm gonna say eight thirty, book it. Eight thirty. I also wanna say eight thirty six, so if we want to get more precise, that's how much how many he's gonna have. Nice. Good answers, guys. Thank you. Decisive. Alrighty, that's gonna wrap it up for this edition of the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. That's shotgun. That's Grace. I'm Keely. We'll see y'all next week. <laughs>